0: What they are trying to do is really difficult. Have a fulfilling career, work full time, be a good mother, be a good wife. And I want my example to say, you can be good enough. You, you don't have to be perfect.
1: Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth. And that's you as in university but we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lizbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. Dr. Susan Landers, I am so very thrilled that you are with us today. Thank you for being my guest on Persistence U. Oh, thank you, Liz, Beth, for inviting me. I am
0: going, I'm looking forward to this.
1: This is a wonderful conversation. I love it because it's a conversation for adults our age who have parented and had a busy, busy career, but it's also a conversation that's very nurturing for young moms. So before we get too far into it, I just want to give you a little introduction that. Dr. Susan Landers is an, and forever will be calling her Susan from here on out because she's retired. She just reminded me. But she's a neonatologist who worked full time in NICU for the uh, intensive care for infants for over 30 years while raising three children up to young adulthood. And that's where the story begins, and it's so much more than that. And Susan has a book also that we'll be talking about that encapsulates all of it. But Susan, welcome to Persistence U, and please tell us about your journey uh, being a doctor in such an incredibly thriving yet stressful career, but raising little bitty kids. Yeah, thanks.
0: Uh I became a doctor before I got married and had children. So my my identity was pretty solid as a doctor. Went straight through medical school in South Carolina after college. And then I was brave enough to move to Dallas, Texas for pediatric residency training, three years, and then to Houston, Texas for neonatology fellowship. I fell in love with neonatal intensive care because it was working with mothers and babies, and it was also very procedure-oriented. And so I liked both aspects, not only the intensive care, but also working with the moms and, of course, the families. I met my husband my first year. I was on the faculty at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. So I started out in academic medicine. He's a pediatric nephrologist, and so we had lots in common. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the hospital working. We decided to have children. And uh, like any good young doctor, I thought, well, I can do this. I could be a perfect mother. I can handle everything. What's the big <laughs> deal? Back when I got pregnant, the idea of being a super mom was around. Right. And so um, I had my first child. It was a complicated pregnancy. And so I... I had a great opportunity to learn how other women who went through the trauma of having a preterm birth or a pregnancy complication felt. And I think that really helped me a lot to be a better doctor along the way.
1: And oh, so wow.
0: after, yeah, and after I had my first child, I figured out then how difficult it was to balance full time work and having a child we were lucky enough to afford a nanny. And so whenever I was at work, or Philip was at work, the nanny would watch after the kids until they were old enough to go to preschool and then public school. Um, uh, We had our second child within two years, a little girl, so a boy and a girl. And then things got really busy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was struggling to uh, establish an academic career. And my husband was looking at jobs elsewhere. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, he wanted to be a leader in a different academic department. And so he chose a job in a different city. That was really perfect for him. We were expecting our third child and I said, okay, fine, let's do it. Let's move. You know, little did I know, new house, new neighborhood, new schools, find a nanny, left all my friends behind, um, adjusted to a new job was overwhelming. And my okay. first year or two there, I did not do well. I had plenty of help, but I I think I ran myself into the ground. I was still in academic medicine. Um, I became clinically depressed. And I like to talk about that because a lot of people think it's postpartum depression and some people think it's working mom burnout. And maybe it was a little of both. Sure. But we only stayed in that new city six years because my job was never quite right for me. And our children were in private schools, and we thought it was silly to be spending money on private school tuition. So we decided to work on our marriage, move to Austin, Texas, and both go into private practice, where we have both had great jobs and thrived, working for over 25 years. Um, By that time, I had learned how to be a good working mother. I ha- I think I had learned how to balance full-time work and having three kids. I knew how to get help from my husband. I knew how to use my nanny. I called in babysitters when we needed them. Sure. Um, I developed a new circle of friends for support, and I gave myself a break. Finally, when my kids were, you know, late grade school, middle school, I, I finally said to myself, no one could do this perfectly. This is really hard, having a job, a marriage, three kids. You're doing the best you can. That's good enough. Great. And so I started to tell myself on a regular basis that I was a good enough mother. Now, things came up. Each kid had different challenges, of course. And over the years, I became convinced that even though I was gone quite a bit, I was in the hospital a lot working in the NICU, I still became convinced that what I did was provide good enough mothering to my children. And they all grew up to be happy and successful. Of course, fairly independent. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. And so... um, The other thing I did when we switched from academic medicine to private practice, I decided to do some professional development and took some training and learned how to be a a medical director of a donor milk bank. And I started working. Yeah, it was really interesting. There was a donor mother's milk bank in Austin, Texas that was brand new when we moved here. I started working for the American Academy of Pediatrics as a speaker, and those things kind of satisfied my need to do something academic, more achievement than just practicing medicine. So it gave me a great outlet, um, and we both worked until we were well into our 60s. My husband worked a little bit longer than I did um, until... We retired after all three kids were out of the house. So I have had a wonderful career. I was so fortunate to marry another pediatrician who was helpful, who understood my work. We could talk about things when we got home. He was with the children when I was at work. You know, the nanny would check out Mm -hmm. to him and then he would... He loved to cook. He always did all the grocery shopping and cooking. Yay! I know. And I did everything else. You know, the teachers, okay. the coaches, the play dates, the birthday parties, the presents, all that. Everything that moms do.
1: And I felt right. like it
0: was a pretty good division of labor. But I could not have been successful in my work without my husband helping me and without our three children learning to be pretty independent. Mm -hmm. And they all now think it's a good thing that they learned to be independent. They don't think it's uh, because I was gone too much. There were times when they would say that because sometimes I worked 50 or 60 hours a week. And sometimes I was on call at night in the hospital one or two nights a week. And, And that's a lot if your kids are young. So There were times that they would complain, but for the most part, they understood. Oh, I'll tell you a funny story. Laura was a teenager, and she said, you know, Mom, you and Dad always come home, and you always talk about your patients. We're sitting at the dinner table, and you two always unload first, and the rest of us just sit there and wait for y'all to be finished, and then we can tell you about our day. I went, oh, no, that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) She you said really that's what you did and we knew that y'all needed to sort of unload and then and I don't remember doing that I remember eating dinner as a family asking them about their day telling you know everybody telling about how things had gone so it's really interesting to hear when kids are older and they can give you some honest feedback
1: interesting is a nice way to put it sometimes it's brutal <laughs> i know that was pretty brutal yeah <laughs> i love it we get our post-parenting evaluation that is slipped under the door it's like oh oh didn't see yeah. that
0: coming now yeah. mom i wish you had done this yeah oh well
1: yeah okay kid oh boy well that sounds good was there a pivotal moment before you realized that you were a good enough mother like was there something where you're just like you know what I'm doing the best that I can, you know, because that's hard for us as women to be able to embrace and to give up some of that perfectionism and anxiety that comes with it.
0: Yes. And I'll tell you, I think that pivotal moment was when my older daughter was 16 and she developed an eating disorder.
1: Okay. She
0: came home from camp. Saying, I'm fat, I need to go on a diet. And she was really skinny, 110 pounds, beautiful in a bikini. She was a swimmer. And she started her junior year of high school with AP classes and SAT tutorial and teen teaching and captain of the swim team. You know, she was doing everything. She was emulating her do it all mother, I'm sure. And she sort of quit eating, she really went on a diet to the point of pushing food around on her plate and running up the stairs and saying, I'm not hungry, leave me alone. And no matter how much we pleaded with her, she wouldn't eat. She finally complained of uh, stomach pains and I took her to the pediatrician and the pediatrician thought she just had um, reflux and put her on an antacid. But she continued to not eat. And I continued to be really, really worried about her. I don't remember my husband being as concerned as I was. But I just thought this is not right. I called her best friend's mother. We had a very honest conversation. I said, Sally, what what do you think is wrong with Anne? And she said, I'll tell you, Jenny says she She's not eating at school and she's not eating here. And if she's not eating at your house, that means she's not eating. And I went, holy cow, you are kidding. She has an eating disorder. She has early anorexia. So we caught it early within the first two months. I insisted that she go to a nutritionist and a therapist. And I I cut my hours back to 75% so I could personally take her to all those appointments. She loved the nutritionist, thank goodness, and she bonded with that nutritionist, and, and she helped her refeed over the next three or four months, so she never lost more than about 10 pounds. She went from 110 to 100, and she continued to swim, although her times weren't very good, but that wasn't important. What was important was that she started eating again and taking care of herself and being a little less anxious. And I really loved doing those things with my daughter. And I loved that I had figured it out and I had enlisted the help of a friend and I had arranged all the therapy she needed. And I thought, and you know, I was really terrified the whole time, Lizbeth. I was terrified because when I was younger, Karen Carpenter was starving to death in a hospital bed.
1: That's right. And for our younger listeners, Karen Carpenter is how anorexia and eating disorders really hit the map. Uh, a singer, a popular singer with the most rich voice who, who died of complications uh, due to long-term anorexia. So right. that's absolutely terrifying. So I was terrified.
0: Here I was a physician No, And I I would look at my daughter and think, oh, my God, I just can't believe this. She's going to have to go in the hospital and be tube fed and all that. But, of course, none of that was necessary because she got the therapy that she needed. And as a family, we got some counseling about, you know, how you divide the labor and how you balance your life and how you talk about your feelings and all those things that I suspect to overachieving physician parents might not have done so well and so and Anne was able to tell us what she needed more time with her dad honestly obviously more time with me and as she got better she and I became much closer and to this day we're still very close she continues to have some trouble with an anxiety disorder, but it's under very good control on medication and with therapy. But she does not have an eating disorder. She eats well, she's had two healthy pregnancies, so she's she's doing fine. But So to answer your question, diagnosing the eating disorder or, or figuring out what it was and getting her the help she needed and cutting back my hours to get extra time to spend with her was my pivotal moment that i was doing a good enough job this was very this was scary and i thought wow a lot of people wouldn't have been able to do this um and in fact the sooner that you diagnose an eating disorder in a teenager, the earlier it is to treat. And so I felt good about what I had done, even though what she had was scary. Right. Yeah. So that was probably a typical moment. Okay.
1: That's wonderful because you get, you understood that that was a real strength. You could have been so lost in your work that you look up and she's 75 pounds So, you know, that's so fantastic that it did not go down that way. I love that. Now, when it came time to retire, and of course, you have a heart for younger moms. How did it come to be that you began working on a book? And Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the last two years
0: of my career, I recognized that I was burned out. I had worked in the NICU too much and there were some challenging ethical cases and some parents disagreed with what the doctors recommended. And a baby that was profoundly um, disabled survived. And there were some things going on that bothered me, even though I had been doing it for 30 years, it it, it was just, it seemed different and I was working a lot and suddenly I, I recognized that I was burned out, but it was so fortunate that I had a practice who was my, my group practice was in the process of covering a low risk labor and delivery unit in another small hospital. And they wanted somebody to go over there and see normal newborns and cover deliveries. And none of my partners wanted to do it. They thought it would be boring. And I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I went to this new nursery, and it was so much fun. I got to talk about breastfeeding and talk to new moms and go to deliveries. It was wonderful. And so I also got to recover from my burnout with um, some therapy, with some uh, doing hobbies, needlework again, lots of reading. I joined a bell choir at my church, ringing oh, handbells. Oh, it was Great. wonderful. The music just carried me away, just took the stress off my shoulders, took me somewhere else. It was wonderful. I took friends to lunch and we talked about things and had a good time. And and so over the next year or two, I recovered from my burnout and I felt healthy enough to retire, to really say, okay, this is enough. And when I retired, I decided to write about it. And I don't remember if someone suggested that. I think a friend said, why don't don't you write some of these stories down? Because I had always told people stories about certain moms, certain babies, certain partners. And I started writing about NICU stories and special parents. I contacted all the parents and asked for permission to use their story or their child's story. Every single one of them said yes. Oh. And Oh, it's wonderful. And one day, this anesthesiologist whose daughter I took care of for six months, I got in touch with him. And I said, can I tell her story? And he said, of course you can. I said, well, I'll change her identity. He said, that's okay. I don't care. He he emailed me back a picture of his daughter, who was then like 16 or 17, almost ready to graduate from high school. And the next email, he said, you know, she wants to go to med school and be a neonatologist. And I was sitting there reading that email, just tears running down my cheeks, thinking, oh, my gosh, that's so sweet that a baby that I could care of. And she was a very difficult baby. She was in the hospital
1: for six months. Oh my goodness. Uh, Susan, that's lovely. That what a gratifying gratifying thing. Yes.
0: So all the families agreed for me to tell their stories. And so I wrote those stories. And then one of my best friends said, Why don't you write your own stories? Why don't you write some of your mothering stories? How your children challenged you? What were your triumphs? I said, Okay, that's a good idea. So the book is both. The book is uh, uh, two stories woven together. One is me as a doctor and the patients and parents that touch my life. And the other part of it is me as a mom. Love it. And so I was able to reflect after retirement on my life and on my accomplishments and on my being a mother. And the book, writing the book was such a wonderful process. In retrospect, and it was the healthiest self-analysis that I have ever done.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. And, and that's saying a lot because you actually had the courage to put ego aside where a lot of doctors have a hard time doing that. But you put the ego aside a long time ago and said, if I have anxiety, I'll go to therapy if I need it. I'll take a medic, you know, whatever I need to do, I'll, right. I'll, I'll not keep it secret. But you know, writing about it—good for you. That's so exciting.
0: It—it is a little bit of practicing vulnerability. It is. Mm -hmm. I mean, to to admit when you were challenged and things didn't go well—it's not easy. And I did tell the truth in my book about, uh, like, if we lost a baby that I really loved, the family or if there was conflict between the family and me or the other doctors i wrote about that and so i actually was honest in my book right and and oh, that process fine. helped me to be fine with letting my practice go and being retired and then i discovered that i wanted to support working moms and other right. women who might be struggling with this juggling act that we do that's job and marriage and kids and friends and family. And so I decided to start um, talking about that and write blogging about that. And that's what I've been doing since the book has been published.
1: That is wonderful. Now, when what, what did you title the book? I actually know, but go ahead and tell the listeners if you would. And then when did it get published?
0: The book was published in September of 2021. Wonderful. And it's called So Many Babies, My Life Balancing a Busy Medical Career and Motherhood.
1: Wonderful.
0: I, th- I always felt like I was sometimes when I was overworked, I felt like I was drowning in so many babies. So that's why I use the term so many babies. Um, And I'm proud of it. I'm proud that I was able to tell the truth. And I hope that younger working moms, if they do read it, or if they hear me talking, will hear that what they are trying to do is really difficult. Have a fulfilling career, work full time, be a good mother, be a good wife. And I want my example to say, you can be good enough. You you don't have to be perfect.
1: I love it. I love it. That's such an important message because still I feel like women are, There's an impossible standard that still is out there, which is we feel guilty when we're at work because we're not parenting well enough. And when we're parenting, we feel guilty about the work that we couldn't pick up that maybe some of our coworkers had to do. And if we turn down a shift of on call, then, you know, that's bad. And it shows how moms shouldn't have been at the workplace to begin with. There's just so much hitting us that it's really hard not to have anxiety and feel real bad. So no. I love that you bring this conversation. The, the,
0: I think our culture, we have allowed, working women have allowed our culture to tell us that we have to do everything. And that right. is impossible. Our husbands don't do everything. And they don't feel guilty about it when they go to work. When When my kids were sick, for some reason, I always was the one to give the Tylenol, call the pediatrician, call the hospital, try to get coverage, figure out how to take them in. And, and my husband would just go to work. And one right. day I said, I don't remember, it was somebody was sick with a fever and I was in the ICU and he went off to work. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to work. And I said, why aren't you helping me? He said, you don't need my help. You always take care of it. And he walked out the door and I thought, well, he's right. I do always take care of it. That was one of the instances when I learned, I got to ask for help. I've got to learn how to ask my husband for help. And so there are lots of little things like that that I put in the book, because I think women who try to do everything probably sabotage
1: themselves. It
0: is impossible to do everything.
1: Amen. And I really feel like, too, a lot of it, of course, it was handed to us. You know, I mean, as far as us being able to go to the workplace, I mean, back in the day when the war happened and women went to work and then men came home from the war and women weren't welcome to work anymore. Right. Then when we got the right to contribute again, it was like, well, I just don't want to wrinkle any feathers. I want to make sure that I get to have a career, but I won't inconvenience you with it. And it's really, we have to retrain ourselves and our daughters and make sure that people understand. When I worked in probation work, I had a young man that I supervised, uh, one of the other probation officers. And he told me one time that he was babysitting his children that weekend. And I said, what? (laughs) Are they not yours? I thought that those were your children. I said, please do not ever let me hear you say that again. That's actually very offensive these are your children. It sounds like you're parenting. And it was, and I love him. It was completely inappropriate in my role, but I'm telling you, it made an impression. We have to undo a lot of the the things that we inherited. And some of it we have choice over and some of it we did not. We literally inherited a, a society where the odds were a little bit stacked against us, but we can change that. We are changing it, but we've got to start small with that lingo and how we think about asking for help. And if you've got a supportive partner, be, you know, however a person is parenting, ask that person. And if they're not supportive, see if you can retrain them into that or, you know, really ask some other people to step in because we can't do it all on our own. We can't do it all on our own and And, you know,
0: bouncing the ideas off friends is another good thing. If you don't have a mother or a mother in law to help, or if you don't have a friend who can bail you out when a child is sick. Uh, it, there there are people that you can ask for support, for help. Yes, um it's I think it for me, it was really hard to learn to ask for help. I had always been the boss, made the decisions, run the care do the procedures. And so if I was overwhelmed and somebody was sick or there was something else that needed doing outside of work, I was hesitant to ask for help for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had a principal, she and I were talking about my son, David, who was having some trouble uh, transitioning from Montessori preschool to a traditional kindergarten and I had been talking to the teacher and reading things about his behavior and talking to her. And and she said, you know, you're a working mom and you try really, really hard to be on top of everything. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, you don't have to do that. I said, really? She said, really? The stay-at-home moms are not that into everything that you're into. Right. And I went, you're kidding. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> they have all this extra time. And she said, no, they're probably a little bit better at saying no, because they don't like to be put on. And I said, oh, I thought I was supposed to volunteer for everything and take, you know, take care of all the details.
1: <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny that it's so good that someone told you that? Yeah, that, you, you don't know, have to do here's... everything. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, oh, light bulb. That's awesome. (laughs) Yes.
0: I had a partner who was an ICU doctor, pediatric ICU, and she volunteered to be the room mother the year our sons were in the fourth grade. Our sons were friends and they were computer geeks together and they, you know, played around together. And I said, Debbie, why are you doing that? You work full time. You don't need to be the room mother. She said, oh, I want to do it. I want to set an example of how it should be done correctly. And I'm going, okay, I want to see this. She created a spreadsheet, and every kid's name and every mom's name was on the spreadsheet, all the phone numbers. Each parent was assigned a holiday. Of course, their kids' birthdays were noted. Uh, each party was planned out for the whole school year. I have never seen such organization for a room mother. And I said to her, wow, you have really done this. And she said, yes. And I wanted, she said, I wanted to set an example. I said, well, I am never creating a spreadsheet for the holiday parties for the fourth grade. That's where I draw my line.
1: (laughs) Good. That's a true story we must draw lines. We must draw lines. And I am lucky because I was a single soul supporting mom of my kids since they were in diapers. No, no regular contact with their father. And I didn't have relatives around me. But I did learn to ask for and I can think of friends who gave my kids rights to sports as they got older before I got off work. Or friends whose kids went to the same school and my kids could go over there after school so I could finish working and then zip over. And without those kind of people, without that community, I mean, it would have been impossible. And I did try volunteering in the school and thankfully I'm so bad with dexterity and trying to cut objects and Crap. you know organized papers and stuff so I was literally fired my kids went to an optional public school program but the teacher was like you know you don't need to do that oh, that's cute. That's good. it was a relief I was like yeah. you know what that's okay that's okay It's yeah. not my superpower right so right. I really do applaud this conversation of being a good enough mom but also commemorating your beautiful career Uh, that you enjoyed and that meant the world to you also while you were parenting amazing children. So thank you so much. Could you say the book's name again and one place like your website where we can connect with you? Oh
0: yeah, so many babies. My life balancing a busy medical career and motherhood. My website is susanlandersmd.com and I have a free checklist there for your listeners. If they type in susanlandersmd.com slash burnout, they will get a free checklist for working mothers to assess themselves, whether or not they're okay, stressed, or headed towards burnout. Good. Yeah. So Excellent. No, thank you. No. Well, I
1: so thank you for your time today. I really have enjoyed it. Oh, me too. You, you're fun to talk to. So are you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week.
0: Proud member of the Podnougan Network.